and welcome to City Breaks Paris, Episode 5, Revolutionary Paris, that defining moment in French history, and particularly in Parisian history. You have to say that the main place associated with it, La Bastille, no longer exists, but that doesn't mean you can't find traces of the revolution all over the city. And so in this episode, I'm proposing to offer a little bit of history first, and then a tour of three of the main places associated with La Révolution. That would be the Conciergerie, which we've already visited in a medieval context, but where there's a lot more to learn about the revolution. And the Place de la Concorde, that central square where so many people lost their lives. And then thirdly, the Musée Carnavalet, which is actually the Museum of French History, but which has some very good exhibits on this particular period. So, to start with then, what actually happened? It's basically the story of the sans-culottes, which sounds like the people with no trousers in modern French, but actually referred to those people who wore long trousers, as opposed to the knee breeches that the posh people wore. So the revolution was basically the rise of the sans-culottes to, as they put it, end hunger, poverty and oppression. If we don't rise up against the rich, they said, we will all be done for. And to start right in the thick of it, in July 1789, there they were, in central Paris, throwing the government out of the Hôtel de Ville and setting up a national guard and generally trying to take over. There were mobs rampaging through the city, opening up debtors' prisons, sparking riots all over the city and eventually attacking the Invalides, which of course was the centre of the army base in Paris, because they knew that there they could get plenty of weapons. They actually looted 32,000 muskets and 10,000 pounds of gunpowder because they were en route across the river to the Bastille prison, which, as they thought, contained large crowds of political prisoners. They were going to storm it and set them all free. And a pretty fierce mob they were. We have the words of an Englishman, one Edward Rigby, describing what he saw thus. As we pressed more to the centre of the crowd, we perceived two bloody heads raised on pikes, which were said to be the heads of the Marquis de Launay, governor of the Bastille, and of Monsieur Flessel. It was a chilling and horrid sight. Well, the mob was successful, as I'm sure you know. The Bastille had fallen, prisoners were set free. It turned out, in fact, that there only thought to have been about seven of them there, so it wasn't quite the grand gesture that maybe they'd been hoping for, although it is the day on which the French Revolution is deemed to have begun. It wasn't long before they were exaggerating the number of people they'd set free and celebrating wildly. This, of course, was on July the 14th, the day which, ever after in French history, is known as Bastille Day and is the day on which celebrations take place to remember the triumph of the people over their oppressors during the Revolution. It wasn't until a year later that the Bastille was raised to the ground, but destroyed it eventually was, and so, of course, you can't visit it today. But we do have some written records telling us quite a lot about what it was about. It had actually been set up for political prisoners, people who would be brought along by guards who had a mysterious lettre de cachet, which simply told the prison governor that he was to receive this individual, question him and detain him until further orders. Its reputation today is for a place that had terrible conditions, but history wonders whether perhaps that hasn't been slightly exaggerated over the years, not least, of course, by the works of people like Charles Dickens in his novel A Tale of Two Cities. It's thought that he got most of his information by going on a tour of the prison with somebody called Latude, who had been a prisoner himself 
and was very keen to exaggerate the damp straw, the chains, the terrible food, etc. But that if you read history books and accounts written by other people from the time, you get a slightly different take. Here, for example, is an extract from the prison diary itself, written by the guards, about Latude during his imprisonment. Quote, He sends for us at eight o'clock in the evening to tell us to send his turnkey to the market to buy fish, saying that he cannot eat eggs, artichokes or spinach. He is just as exacting on meat days. He swore like a trooper and said to me, Commander, when I am given fowl, it should at least be well basted. I don't think anyone's saying that some people weren't imprisoned for dubious reasons or that some people endured hardship and awful conditions. It's just that there's another side to it too. So the Bastille storming is seen as the beginning, but things took on a pace shortly after that. In October of the same year, for example, Parisian women took action. They started with a bread riot in a square called Place de Creve. They found a baker who they thought was cheating them and were furious and wanted him hanged. And as more and more of them joined together and their fury increased, they decided they would march on Versailles, where the king was known to be staying. So they elected a leader, one Stanislaus Maillard, and off they went. And here's an extract from something which Maillard wrote shortly afterwards. I saw arriving from all directions detachments of women armed with broomsticks, cudgels, pitchforks, swords, pistols and muskets. All the houses were closed up, in fear, no doubt, of pilfering. The women, in spite of that, went and knocked on every door, and when someone refused to open, they wanted to break it down. Newspaper reports from the time described the women dragging bodyguards from the palace out, provoking them, taunting them, and eventually murdering one of them. Here's the newspaper Révolution de Paris from the time. Quote, one of the bodyguards is dragged to the foot of the staircase in the marble courtyard. His head is cut off. The king eventually came out onto the balcony, at which point the women all shrieked at him, to Paris, to Paris, and he agreed to go. So a party was formed to escort Louis, escort in inverted commas perhaps, from Versailles into central Paris, where he and his family were installed in the palace of the Tuileries, not knowing perhaps that actually they would never be going back to Versailles. The king, Louis the Sixteenth, and his queen, Marie Antoinette, were effectively imprisoned in the palace that they weren't allowed out and they had guards with them all the time and at one point a few months later they decided that what they would do is try and escape. They thought they would try and leave the country and reorganise and then come back and try and take power back. They slipped away in disguise in the middle of the night described thus by Robert Cole in his Traveller's History of Paris. Quote, the royal family travelled in an outsized coach pulled by eight horses with coachmen outriders and others, all wearing royal livery. A second coach followed, with two ladies-in-waiting, trunks filled with ball gowns, a silver service for dining en route, and a wine cellar. Needless to say, progress was slow. And, of course, as you may be now surmising, what happened was, eventually, the whole thing broke down, and they were escorted back to Paris, and the escape attempt had failed. There were more attacks on the Tuileries Palace, which was guarded by Swiss guards, culminating on the 3rd of July, when some 600 of the guards were killed. That was perhaps the moment when the monarchy was finished. In September that year, there was something called the September Massacre, when things really boiled over. A rampaging mob killed over 1,200 people, nobles, people of the church, wealthy merchants, 
many more unfortunates who were, as Robert Cole describes, quote, bludgeoned, shot, knifed, strangled, burned alive or killed in any way the mob chose. The British ambassador who saw some of this is said to have remarked, what a people, unable perhaps to comprehend the utter fury and rage and violence of what was going on. On the 22nd of September, a national convention was elected who declared that that was the end of the monarchy. It was abolished and they declared that that day was the beginning of year one of the French Republic. By December, the king, no longer known as Louis XVI, but now known as Louis Capet, was on trial, at the end of which he was condemned to death. The vote was relatively close, 387 to 334, but it was conclusive, and Louis became then, a few weeks later, one of the first people to be guillotined, meeting his death then by a machine which he himself had approved of only a few months earlier, deeming it to be a, quote, more humane means of execution. That was by no means the end of the story, because the next two years were known as La Terreur, the Terror, the period during which the people who had taken over during the revolution wrecked their vengeance. They were run by a committee known as the Committee of Public Safety, hugely ironic, and they sat in a tribunal in the upper room of the conciergerie, a court in which all sorts of people were tried and condemned to death a period in which all kinds of rules of society and organising things were overturned. So, being very anti-religion, the revolutionaries got rid of the Christian calendar and decided they would have a new calendar. And they went metric, so the new year was going to have ten months in it, consisting of three ten-day weeks. And they were all given names to do with agriculture or crafts. So, names for the people. March and April, for example, became Germinal, the season in which seeds germinated. They decided to get rid of all titles. You weren't even allowed to call anyone Monsieur or Madame anymore because everybody was Citoyen, Citizen, or the Feminine, Citoyenne. They renamed all sorts of buildings and places in the city. So the square that had been known as Place Louis XV, Louis XV Square, was renamed Place de la Révolution. Royalist was out, of course, so the Palais Royal became the Palais National and the square which had been known as Place du Trône, so the Throne Square, was renamed Place du Trône Renversé, the square of the overturned throne. You may wonder what's happened to all these names today. In fact, they didn't last very long. Under Napoleon, just a few decades later, a lot of this was thrown out again. Something else they did was decree that churches should all be destroyed. Fortunately, given some of the lovely churches which managed to survive, they didn't actually carry that out to the letter, it's thought that about a dozen were actually pulled down, but many more were damaged in rioting, and lots of other churches were redesignated, given other roles in life. So the glorious Sainte-Chapelle, for example, became a place to store flour. Saint-Germain-des-Prés was taken over and used as a meeting hall for revolutionary meetings. They were just finishing off a new church to be known as the Church of Sainte-Geneviève, Sainte-Geneviève being the patron saint of the city, but that was not going to be allowed to continue, so they renamed that building the Pantheon, the Pantheon. That, of course, has lasted to today. It was decided it would be a mausoleum for French heroes. And even Notre Dame didn't escape completely. It was converted into something called a Temple of Reason, where meetings and events would be held that celebrated reason rather than religion. So then, so much for a quick rundown of the very, very main things that happened. Let's turn our attention to 
three places in the city today where you can go to learn a whole lot more about the revolution. And the first one is the Conciergerie. We mentioned that, of course, in a medieval context in an earlier episode, but I want to come back to it because it's probably the building in the whole of Paris that has the most to say about the revolution. And that's because partly today it's used as a museum of the revolution, so exhibition, films, all sorts of things to help you learn more. And also, of course, because it was a building which played a major role during the event itself. It had been a prison since 1391. I saw it described in a guidebook as having been a prison from 1391 until 1914. But there's no doubt that the period in which it was best known for that role was during the revolution. So in April 1793, the Revolutionary Tribunal began here. They opened up a room known as the Première Chambre Civile, so the first chamber of civil rule, if you like, a court, basically. And it was here that many trials were held. It was also here, in many other rooms of the building, that people awaiting trial were kept in prison. And it was from here that so many of them were driven off in carts to one of the sites of the guillotine for their execution. The most famous prisoner of all who spent time here was the Queen herself, Marie-Antoinette. While King Louis was still alive, the two of them had been held somewhere called the Temple, but for the last two and a half months of her life, she was brought here to await trial. She'd already been a prisoner for a year, and she was brought here in the middle of the night, arriving at 3am, given a ground-floor cell, which you can still visit today. She was treated pretty much like any other prisoner, served two meals a day, People who guarded her recorded afterwards that she spent most of her time reading and praying, although she'd been allowed no writing materials. There was drama at one point when it was discovered that there'd been a conspiracy to try and free her, known rather colourfully as the Carnation Conspiracy. It was initiated by someone called the Marquis de Rougeville. He'd been allowed in to see her, and he threw his carnation from his buttonhole onto the floor, and she discovered afterwards when he'd gone that there was a message in it pinned behind it, presumably. She wrote a reply. She didn't have any writing materials, but she scratched out a reply using a pin, and she handed it to her gendarme that was guarding her that day, someone called Gendarme Gilbert. He'd been quite considerate towards her compared to some of the others, and she had a feeling that she could trust him. Sadly, she wasn't right, because after a couple of days, probably worrying what would happen if anyone found out that he'd helped the Queen escape, he reported it to his superiors, and the result of that was that she was moved to a cell further away from the entrance and fewer visitors allowed from then on in. The trial was held, 41 different witnesses were called, and at the end of that she was sentenced to death and taken off to be executed. I thought it would be interesting here to just pause for a moment and talk a little bit about this woman. Who was she? So, she had come to France as a 14-year-old from Austria. She was the daughter of a very domineering mother, the Empress Maria Theresa of Austria, who had decided that this one of her daughters would marry the heir to the French throne, the Dauphin, and sent her over here to do exactly that. So she was very young and a foreigner, and felt right from the beginning that her life was no longer her own, and she was scrutinised from the very first day. A diary entry that she wrote in 1770 tells us, for example, that, quote, At eleven o'clock I have my hair done, at noon, all the world can enter. I put on my rouge and wash my hands in front of the whole world. Then the gentlemen leave and the ladies remain and I am dressed in front of them. 
There are many reasons to feel sorry for her, I think. Her marriage was certainly no love match in the early days. There was massive pressure on her to produce an heir, and although the second child which survived was a boy, he wasn't born until at least a decade into the marriage, at which point Louis apparently said to her, Madame, you have fulfilled our wishes and those of France. Not the most romantic of utterances, I don't feel. She had this very domineering mother who kept an extremely close eye on her by letter from a distance and insisted that her daughter tell her all the most intimate details of her life and was forever dispensing advice about how she should behave, even when she was fully an adult. She had her position, of course, as a woman in a very male-dominated court. The public didn't like her. They called her the foreigner or the Austrian. And I think you have to pity her for all those reasons. However, you can also say that she was very extravagant, seemed completely out of touch, really, with normal life. Even in a time when it was clear that the poor in Paris were having a very difficult life, she thought nothing of making huge expenditure on things like clothes, and she had a cottage built for her in the grounds of Versailles. And she was ridiculed and loathed in equal measure for her relationship with her dressmaker, one Rose Bertin, whom she met twice a week, and who designed many of the extravagant and hugely expensive dresses that she wore. It gives you a little bit of an insight into what was going on to hear this quotation from a book called Paris, the Biography of a City by Colin Jones, in which he explains exactly what role Rose Bertin played. Quote, Rose was a marchande de mode, a word best translated as milliner or fashion merchant. The bodice and train of a dress were the work of a tailor, a seamstress or couturière provided the petticoats, while the marchand de mode supplied the decorative features which gave the dress and accompanying headgear its distinctiveness. And he goes on to describe some of the various headgear that were designed, decorated with all kinds of mad things, flowers, feathers, fruit, and what he calls knick-knacks of every sort that were threaded into the hair or into the wig. So completely over the top and extravagant. This style culminated in the head feathers idea, where said feathers, which would be two or three feet high, were decorating the headgear. And the whole thing contributed to the idea that Marie Antoinette had really no idea what life was like for ordinary people. Colin Jones again, quote, Rose Bertin was a disaster for the crown. Her expensive fripperies became the target for much anti-monarchical satire and critique, and nourished the myth that the state's financial problems were mainly due to courtly extravagance. Rumours were rife about all sorts of other things, for example that Marie Antoinette had slept with regiments of guardsmen, the phrase that was used at the time, and also that she took lesbian lovers. And then, of course, there's the infamous remark that she's said to have made about if the poor don't have any bread, why don't they simply eat cake? It's thought today that she didn't actually say those words, but the point is, because of the way she behaved, once this rumour spread, people believed it. She certainly could have said it, they thought, and that is what doomed her in the end. But descriptions of her on the first day of her trial do make for very sad reading. Antonia Fraser, who wrote the definitive biography of Marie Antoinette, described her as looking ghastly, a white-haired woman with sunken features. And her description of Marie Antoinette standing at the witness box gawped at by all the people who'd come to ridicule her and wish her evil, makes for some quite sad reading, I feel. Quote, she was nevertheless entirely composed 
as she stood in her widow's weeds, the worn black dress patched, and took the oath in the name of Marie-Antoinette of Lorraine and Austria, widow of the King of France, born in Vienna. And then she goes on to relate how the courtroom was full of market women who certainly wished her no well, and whose petty vengeance was shown in ways, for example, the serving women who were charged with bringing her food in the middle of the day would make a point of spilling much of the soup on the floor on the way, so that by the time it arrived there was practically nothing left to eat. And it's said that she maintained this dignity right through the trial and even, in fact, on the day of her execution. The night before her execution, she wrote to her sister-in-law, Louis's sister Elizabeth, using the following words, quote, I have just been condemned to death, not to a shameful death, that can only be for criminals, but in order to rejoin your brother. Innocent like him, I hope to demonstrate the same firmness as he did at the end. I am calm, as people are whose conscience is clear. My deepest regret is at having to abandon our poor children. You know that I lived only for them, and for you, my good and tender sister. So, all of that played out here in the Conciergerie, but we mustn't run away with the idea that there weren't a lot of ordinary people there as well, because there certainly were. During the period of the Terreur, there were up to 600 prisoners at any one time, awaiting trial, in many cases awaiting execution. Contemporary descriptions tell us of the terrible overcrowding, the rat-infested conditions where fever spread easily. The fact that the luckier, in inverted commas, people who were able to pay for a bed got a sort of camp bed that was shoved in a room with four or five other people, but that everybody else had to sleep on straw, straw being la paille, and therefore they were known as les pailleux. There are descriptions of the jailers coming round every evening, reading out the names of those who were to be tried the next morning. And if you go and visit today, you can look at the exhibition that explains all about the revolution, you can wander up and down the prisoners' corridors. You can go into Marie Antoinette's room with its chapel at one end. You can see paintings of her. You can see some of her possessions that are still there, her cross, a little porcelain jug. A good place to reflect on her and the terrible fate that awaited her. The other place in modern Paris, which is very much a place to remember the revolution, is the Place de la Concorde. That's a slightly strange thing to say, because when you go, there doesn't seem to be all that much to see. It's a large square, I think it's the city's largest square, full of traffic, French traffic, you know, so pretty mad. And if you didn't know what had happened there, I suppose you could pass through without ever suspecting it. So it was built not long before the revolution, in 1775, and at that stage it was called the Place Louis XV, so called after the king, Louis XV. As soon as the revolution was underway, it was renamed. Of course, you couldn't have a square not named after the king anymore, so it became, predictably enough, Place de la Révolution, where it's thought that over 1,300 executions took place. After the revolution then, when people were trying to forget the horrors, it was decided to rename it, and that's when it became Place de la Concorde. So a nice, peaceful, harmonious sort of name was chosen to try and obliterate the horrors that had taken place there. But the fact remains, it was one of three main places in the city where executions were carried out, starting in 1789 when the statue of Louis XV, which had been the centrepiece of the square, was torn down and replaced by a scaffold with its guillotine. And it's the square where some of the most notable executions took place, 
starting, of course, with that of Louis XVI, on the 21st of January, 1793, after a two-month trial. We have an account of the execution, written by an eyewitness, one Louis-Sébastien Mercier, which makes it sound really, and horribly, a bit like a day at the end of a carnival or something. So this is what he wrote. Quote, His blood flows, and there are people who dip a fingertip, a quill, a scrap of paper in it. There is one who tastes it and says, It is vilely salt. An executioner at the scaffold side sells small bundles of his hair, people by the ribbon that tied it. Everyone carries off a small fragment of his clothing or some other blood-stained remnant from the tragic scene. I saw the populace go by, arm in arm, laughing, talking, as if returning from some festivity. In her biography of Marie Antoinette, Antonia Fraser describes the same scene from a different viewpoint. She writes how Marie Antoinette and Louis's sister Elizabeth and the two children were imprisoned in the temple when this scene took place, from which they could hear some of what was happening. And this is what she wrote. There was an extraordinary silence over the city that morning, explained by the fact that the main gates had been locked and the usual bustle was therefore stilled. It was the sound of drumming shortly before half past ten, followed by loud shouts of joy from the frenetic spectators that told the listeners in the tower that the king was dead. Marie Antoinette could not speak. She was imprisoned in her own silent world of agony. But Elizabeth broke out amid the piercing cries of the children. The monsters! They are satisfied now. Nine months after that, of course, it was Marie Antoinette herself who followed her husband to the Place de la Révolution. She was driven there in a cart from the conciergerie, wearing a simple white cotton dress with her hands tied behind her back. Her hair had already been shorn in preparation, and we know this partly from a sketch drawn of her by the artist Jacques-Louis David, which you can now see in the Louvre. He apparently was standing on the roadside as the cart went past, and he captured it in his drawing. One of the ironies of the revolution was that, some way into it, some of the people who had been played a leading role in organising it met their own death, as factions arose and people turned one against another. And one of these was Georges-Jacques Danton, who had been a powerful figure, but then he fell out with some of the other extremists because he wanted to advocate some measure of clemency. They didn't like that, so they sentenced him to death. And again, we're left with an eyewitness account of how he was the last person that day to appear on the platform, which was already soaked with the blood of his friends. It was at nightfall, so he and the guillotine made a what's described as a horrible statue against the sky, a silhouette. And the writer, a poet called Arnaud, goes on to write the following, quote, Time cannot erase the horrible pantomime from my memory. I recall the full force of my feeling at Danton's last words, which I did not hear myself, but which were passed round with horror and admiration. Make sure you show my head to the people. It is worth seeing. So, as you stand in or near the Place de la Concorde, think of all these things. You might fall to wondering, by the way, what that massive Egyptian obelisk is doing in the middle of the square. That's actually absolutely nothing to do with the revolution. It was a gift made to Louis-Philippe in 1831. It had come from the Temple of Ramses at Luxor. It was a gift to the French nation. And it's thought that Louis-Philippe, looking as you do when someone gives you a knick-knack for somewhere to put it, hit on this square, thinking that it would detract from the square's bloody history. It will be something to look at. 
that would perhaps take people's minds off the terrible events which had taken place there only four decades earlier. And the third place I wanted to mention is somewhere called the Musée Carnavalé, so a museum in the Marais district. It's actually the main museum of French history, but it does have a very good section on the revolution. And things that you can see if you go there include a recreation of the cell in the temple prison in which Louis XVI was held, believed to have some of his own furniture in it. It's thought that at the time some of his sympathisers stole it, took it away and later donated it to the museum. You can see things like his laundry list, should that interest you. There are also things belonging to Marie Antoinette there, not least her dressing table, and toys belonging to the Dauphin, the heir to the throne, their son who I think was eight or nine at the time. So Louis Charles dominoes, some of his toy soldiers, and rather macabrely, a coffin-shaped ring, which presumably he was given at some point after the death of his father, which contained some of his father's hair. There's a drawing of a figure known as La Veuve Capet, so the widow Capet, Marie Antoinette herself, in her new name, bestowed on her by the revolutionaries, and that shows her in prison in the conciergerie. You can see bits and pieces relating to the revolution itself. The keys to the Bastille are there, for example. Banners calling for liberté. A watch which shows revolutionary time, so a day of ten hours, each of which are a hundred minutes long, and every minute a hundred seconds long. They like their metric, don't they, over there? And you can even see what's said to be a working model, made in ivory, of a guillotine. So I recommend that, a visit to the Musée Carnavalé. We know today that Paris remembers its revolution with pride. The 14 juillet, the 14th of July, the day on the, which the Bastille was stormed and the revolution was deemed to have begun, is celebrated in great style every year, and absolutely particularly in 1989, the 200th anniversary of course, when various things happened. So, for example, the Opéra Bastille was inaugurated, a second opera house for Paris, deemed to be perhaps much more an opera of the people sort of place, fittingly named Opéra Bastille, credited actually with tidying up and rejuvenating what had become quite a tatty area of the city. 1989 was also the year when the Arche de la Défense, which had been planned since the 1950s, but was finally finished, put up and done, It was inaugurated in that year as part of the bicentenary celebrations, going under the title of An Arch of Fraternity. And perhaps the most interesting memorial is at, of all places, the Concorde metro station. So the metro station just underneath Place de la Concorde, where so many of these terrible things happened. If you step down there, you'll notice straight away the decoration, which is floor to ceiling, no fewer than 49,000 enamel tiles, each one with one letter on them, which in fact write out, albeit with no spaces between the words and no punctuation, so it's quite difficult to follow, but they write out the words of the Déclaration des Droits de l'Homme, so the Declaration of Human Rights, which dates from 1789 and was published at the beginning of the revolution. All the blood and death stick in your mind, of course, it's only right that they should, But actually, the lasting legacy probably is this document and what it stands for. If you stand on the platform and have a few moments waiting for a train, you might try unravelling some of it, but unless there's one of the famous Paris strikes, you'll no way have long enough to get through very much. So I just would like to finish the episode by reading out a few phrases from 
some of the 17 articles which make up the Declaration of Human Rights and which you can read in full down there on the metro station underneath Place de la Concorde. So it opens with that very famous sentence, Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. It puts emphasis on the common good. It talks about the rights of man being liberty, property, safety and resistance against oppression. It defines liberty as being able to do anything as long as you're not harming anybody else. It pins down what the law is for, to forbid actions which are harmful to society and stresses that the law should be the same for everybody. It describes how nobody should be arrested or detained unless they have done something against the law. Emphasises the idea of people being presumed innocent until declared guilty. And states too that, quote, the free communication of thoughts and of opinions is one of the most precious rights of man. So some of the most fundamental principles of society in all Western countries pinned down right there in the Declaration of Human Rights dating from the French Revolution, which took place right here in Paris. I will come back to one or two aspects in a much later episode when I'm going to talk about books that can inform your visit to Paris. We'll have a closer look at Antonia Fraser's biography of Marie Antoinette, perhaps a closer look at The Tale of Two Cities, which has got some gloriously descriptive scenes of revolution in the streets of Paris. So the topic hasn't gone away completely, but next week we are indeed going to move on, move on in history actually, and talk about Napoleon's Paris, which will be a chance for a little more history, hopefully not too much, but definitely a visit to some of the places in the city most connected to him notably the Invalides and, of course, that famous Parisian monument, the Arc de Triomphe. So I hope very much that you'll be there to join me for that and that you found today's episode interesting and something that will inform your next visit to the lovely city of Paris. Just remains for me then to sign off. Thank you very much for listening. Merci. And to say goodbye. Au revoir.